Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Tim, I was reading a story this morning. I want to read the lead to you. Uh, when Donald Trump starts work in the Oval Office in January, in January, he will have more potential business and financial conflicts of interest than any other president in U.S. history. The author of that is Timothy O'Brien, uh, the head of Bloomberg Gadfly, uh, Bloomberg editor, uh, Bloomberg View uh, publisher. Tell us, what are some of those conflicts? Well, they're myriad, Lisa. You know, he's he's coming into the Oval Office uh, having sat atop a boutique branding organization, the Trump Organization. It has a small clutch of lucrative buildings, uh, hotel operations, and um, uh, and his, uh, basically a licensing operation. Uh, he's been a, a human shingle for about the last 10 years or so of his business life. He licenses his name on everything from mattresses and underwear to other people's building, buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And um, his kids run it. He's got a small clutch of, uh, fam- of close associates who've helped him in that business for a long time. Now he's going into the White House. And as president, there are very few conflict of interest laws that apply to him, basically none. What kinds of disclosures does he have to do as far as the business? Uh, because it's a private private business. Yeah, he, I mean, he said throughout the campaign that um, he didn't need to release his tax returns because he had already given uh, the FEC documents about his business operations. But the reality is all of that stuff is self-reported. There are no meaningful numbers associated with any of it. We have uh, a guy coming into the White House who has substantial financial and business connections, and we don't really know the full extent of what they are, and he's free to make a number of policy decisions that could essentially feather his own nest. Timothy O'Brien, I want to also mention that you are the author of Trump Nation, so you have uh, some detailed uh, history about uh, Mr. Trump, uh, the president-elect. If you could characterize uh, what are the most, uh, potentially the most uh, confrontational uh, conflicts of interest, what would they be? Well, he's a real estate developer, so he has uh, a lot of leverage. He's got a lot of loans, in particular Deutsche Bank, the, the big German bank, is one of his primary lenders. Uh, Deutsche is currently under investigation by the Justice Department. Uh, he, the Trump's, you know, the Trump cabinet will have influence over the course of that investigation. Um, Deutsche is very close to the German government. So, of course, any foreign policy or trade agreements that Trump engages in overseas comes to bear on that. Um, he, he campaigned on being uh, uh, against lobbying and entrenched lobbyists, but he's got lobbyists throughout his transition team. Um, policy domestically on taxes is going to affect his real estate operations. Um He's got, I think, currently about 75 lawsuits outstanding, either being filed against him or that he's filed against others, including quite prominently the Trump University case. Um, He gets immunity from having to appear on the witness stand in those cases, but he's not immune from the consequences of that litigation. So that's going to play out as well. 
And there was a story today that Barclays analysts expect that the uh, the potential Deutsche Bank fine by the Department of Justice will probably be much lower in a Trump presidency, to your point about Deutsche Bank being uh, his major lender. I don't know how much that's going to play into it. Um, is there or who will play the biggest watchdog within the government? Who can play that role? Well, it's it really the the chief executive of the United States has a lot of latitude. There is by design not a watchdog. The almost all of the conflict of interest laws at the federal level um, and at the executive branch don't apply to the president. Um, we've relied on presidents in the past creating blind trusts to store their assets so someone else can manage them. But those tend to be securities, stocks and bonds. They don't it, it doesn't include things like a real estate operation and golf courses. Uh, Trump has said that he will distance himself from those operations by letting his three children run them. But in fact, that's really not a prophylactic. He'll be talking, one would assume, about those businesses with his kids every day. So right now we lack a watchdog. Well, coming up, we're going to be speaking with uh, Nathan Dean, our uh, government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We're going to be talking about the defense, uh, rather the Dodd-Frank uh, legislation and any attempts to uh, to change that. But it, just your point about lobbyists and people who are veterans in Washington, I understand that uh, former Representative Mike Rogers, uh, he was a uh, former Reagan Attorney General and Heritage Foundation fellow, Edwin Meese also. So both of them uh, on and don't the transition think, Don't forget team. about Rudy Giuliani himself, the firm that he has been with until recently, Greenberg, um, did lobby and work for the Trump organization over the years on casino issues. So all of this stuff is fairly deep and deeply embedded in his portfolio and his transition team. Yeah, you're saying that I, Trump currently has owes as much as $650 million. So that's a lot of money that he has. It's a lot of money that he has at stake here. Potential for, just uh, quickly, potential for uh, reinstituting uh, Glass-Steagall as a replacement for Dodd-Frank? You know, Trump has said all sorts of varying things about bank regulation, regulatory reform. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, of all people today, said that she'd love to ally with him on some of this. So who would have ever thought that Donald Trump and Elizabeth Warren would wind up as strange bedfellows? So I, we're going to have a lot of wait and see on him in public policy. Thank you very much. Timothy O'Brien, executive editor, Bloomberg Gadfly and Bloomberg View. He's also the author of the book, Trump Nation. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. I want to turn our attention now to Dodd-Frank legislation. Nathan Dean is our government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us now. Uh, bank stocks have had a great run over the last uh, five days. Uh, Citigroup up 7.5%. Goldman Sachs up 14 Morgan Stanley up 15 JP Morgan up 12 Tell us about the future of Dodd-Frank, Nathan Dean. So the future of Dodd-Frank is that it's going to get weakened. Uh, you know, now that we have President-elect Donald Trump, a Republican Senate and a Republican House, uh, Congress is going to be able to push forth many of the changes that they've wanted to do for the last couple of years on Dodd-Frank, and they're going to weaken it. Well, what, now, they, are the, what are the changes that they want to make? So they can't repeal it, and they can't get rid of anything material. So Volcker Rule, for example, they can't do that because you need 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a Democratic filibuster. But what they're going to do is there's a plan out in Congress right now called the Financial Choice Act. You pay 10 percent of the leverage ratio, so increased capital requirements, buys you out of Dodd-Frank. Uh, and another rule that we're going to see, the fiduciary duty rule at the Department of Labor, uh, we expect that to get weakened. Uh, and so you're going to see targeted relief to certain sectors of the financial services industry 
small mid-sized banks, around $250 billion in assets and below, asset managers, insurers. Uh, but you're not going to see like a global repeal of Dodd-Frank. Nathan, just go, go back for just a second. I want, I want you to recast, maybe just offer that detail about if you pay the 10%, I mean, if you have that, that capital cushion, then you get to opt out. You In a sense, you're paying to get out of Dodd-Frank. Exactly. So there's this idea for higher requir- capital requirements, less regulation. Uh, the plan that's out in Congress right now, and it has to be reintroduced next year, so it may look a little bit different, uh, requires the big eight GSIBs, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, etc., to have a 10% leverage ratio. Right now, they're around 6%. Now, Chairman Henseling estimates that in order to get from 6 to eight, uh, six to 10, those eight banks would have to pony up about 300 to $500 billion in new capital. Now, that's a pretty high price to pay, but if you go further down the line, you start looking at the banks that are around $50 billion in assets, $10 billion in assets. Many of them are already at that leverage ratio. So uh, this Financial Choice Act really does favor the small and community-sized banks. So it's, you know, it's sort of interesting. I think when I talk to people, their impression is that uh, Mr. Trump will roll back the majority of the Dodd-Frank Act, and that includes uh, much more risk-taking at the big banks, and that's one reason why uh, people are expecting uh, profitability to go up, and yet it sounds like that's not necessarily the case. Well, there are many ways that they can do this. So for two things to point out. One, uh, the Republicans have tried over 180 times since 2010 to amend Dodd-Frank. They haven't succeeded because they've never been able to get that 60 vote in the Senate. Elizabeth Warren, she's going to be able to cause a lot of problems in the Senate and block a lot of that big regulation. However, Donald Trump now controls the financial regulators. And so he can instruct the new heads of the SEC, CFTC, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, when, uh, if uh, Janet Yellen leaves in 2018, to start looking at rolling back regulation. And so uh, they can do things like putting out notices saying that we're not going to enforce certain regulations, we're not going to hold you accountable. So I think if you see in the short term, you're not going to see a lot of change, but in the long term, you're going to see a lot more. Is there a particular regulation that you're thinking they could uh, sort of ignore or push to the side? The fiduciary duty is the, the perfect example. So this rule came up from the Labor Department. Uh, it caused a lot of problems with the life insurance industry, uh, the broker-dealers, the retirement investment advisors, lots of pushback both from the Democrats, some Democrats and Republicans. Uh, Rule went into force compliances in April. Uh, So what we could see there is uh, the new administration come out, put out a notice in March saying you don't have to comply, and then they'll have to repropose the rule. Uh, You know, any regulation, it's not like Donald Trump can come in on day one, just sign an executive order and it goes away. They have to repropose it. And so uh, the quickest way to overturn a regulation is to have Congress pass it into law. But if they can't do it and they turn to the regulatory agencies, they have to do a rulemaking process, which could take up to 18 months to two years. Nathan, uh, non-bank financial institutions such as AIG, MetLife, Prudential Financial, what can we expect there? So the Financial Stability Oversight Council is the one that controls the designation for AIG and Prudential and MET. Uh, and they serve at the pleasure of the Secretary of the Treasury. They can't do anything unless the Treasury Secretary signs off on it. And now the Secretary of Treasury is going to serve at the pleasure of Donald Trump. And so uh, when AIG and Prudential have their annual reviews over their SIFI status, uh, which will take place sometime in September of October of 2017, uh, it's not unlikely to see at that time the FSOC say, we're just going to de-designate you. You know, there's a lot of talk about town is, is the FSOC going to be finished or not? Uh, and one of the easiest ways to get rid of that de- that designation for AIG and Prudential is to have the FSOC do it in you know later next year. Have the Republicans been against the SIFI? 
a designation just real quick? Yes, absolutely. Uh, across the board. Really, really interesting. Nathan Dean, government analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in Washington, D.C., talking about the implications uh, in a Donald Trump administration. Well, our benchmark, when we want to know anything about the retail industry, is we call Bert Flickinger. He's the managing director of Strategic Resource Group. He can be followed on Twitter at Bert underscore Flickinger. All right, Bert underscore Flickinger. Tell me about the retail ice age that you've most recently witnessed. There's an accelerating retail ice age, Pim and Lisa, and you're uh, going to see a record number of bankruptcies uh, for re uh, retailers. Uh, you're seeing the corporate bond debt uh, trade down for er everyone from Neiman Marcus trading at 80 or below. Uh, your, uh, most of your listeners know issued at 100. J, uh, J. Cruz trading below 40. Uh, Sears is, is really struggling. And even today, you and Lisa talked about the soothsayer of South Korea and the magic purses. The Rasputin of retail is in the headlines today. And Bill Ackman, as he left uh, J.C. Penney on death's doorstep, dropped the stock from 43 to about a dollar 20. And then uh, Steve Sadoff, the pride of Hamilton College and Saks Fifth Avenue, came back, brought Penny back from the dead. They missed today, uh, but they're going to make it where a lot of their competitors, uh, like the Bonton, uh, as, as well as Sears Holdings, which still has softer side of Sears, are struggling. And even Neiman Marcus Group, which owns Barney, their bonds are trading at 80 or below. So there's going to be a real rationalization, uh, whether companies are impaired by Rasputin's like Bill Ackman or uh, just uh, poor consulting and financial advice. Well, and you noted that uh, 2017 will be the most troubling year for retail in a decade. And not to be outdone, 2018 will be worse. Why? <laughs> well, Lisa, and you, you, you and Pim already reported declining oil prices. So, for, for, so for us, the harbinger is really Kazakhstan, where Hudson Bay Company opened a brand new. I was not expecting that. I have to say, <laughs> the harbinger is it's on her list to travel. But go ahead, <laughs> tell us this story because Hudson Bay owns uh, Fifth uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. Saks Fifth Avenue put their latest uh, crown, crown jewel uh, licensed store. Uh, in uh, Kazakhstan, I know from our work with the State Department and USAID, it was only a few years ago where people were showing up on Saturdays with livestock and butch butchering uh, cattle on their cars and, and selling pieces of meat. And State Department was asking us to come up with basic retail. How you get to that to, uh, luxury goods is beyond me. But Saks did it. Harvey Nichols did it. Harvey Nichols closed their Kazakhstan store in less than 100 days. What's what's the barometer? The petrodollars aren't there. Uh, we were in Paris for uh, Fashion Week as well as Golden Week. All the people from Hermes uh, to Le Bon... Um, uh, Le Bon Marché Printemps told us the Chinois, which your listeners know as the Chinese, are there with cameras or calculators just snapping pictures and looking for a lower price. And as Pim referenced in the break, you can go to every luxury offline retailer. And that's why Neiman Marcus, with its mountain of debt with Bergdorf, uh, is in a bad position for tw for maybe 2018. But Barney's is in an even worse position for 2017. And J. Crew possibly for this Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa. Well, how do you square the sudden surge in optimism about growth in the U.S. and the possibility of inflation? And frankly, uh, the more that markets gain, the more that the wealthiest people will, will gain money that they can spend at these, uh, at these retailers. So why isn't this a positive? 
It's it's a positive in terms of the stock market. The the wealth effect is is you referenced uh, well, Lisa. Uh, but but it but at the end, uh, you also have uh, political problems. Uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg under, understood the balance of the. Uh, public and private sector. Uh, average family takes four hours and 40 minutes to come from the suburbs to shop in Midtown Manhattan or Los Angeles, Michigan Avenue, Chicago. With the traffic density in the major cities in the U.S., uh, 70% of that time's lost in traffic, so people uh, don't come anymore. So footfalls way down for leading department stores and, and, and luxury stores in all of what we call the gateway cities. And it's not unique to uh, Los Angeles or Vancouver, or New York or Miami at Aventura Mall. It's something we're seeing in Singapore and and uh, we're seeing in to- in Tokyo and and worldwide. And also, people have expenses coming up. So it's the as- aspirational middle class. It's the middle upper uh, that uh, is is ha- has everything from higher health care to tuition. So they're cutting back on retail spending. Uh, spending spending in other areas. And then you have the millennials who, even if they have good jobs and have the money, uh, they're nesting or what we call thrifting and going to uh, Savers or uh, Goodwill uh, thrift stores or uh, lady, Ladies Village home improvement stores. So you could go to towns like uh, East Hampton and, and uh, luxury retails, uh, not just boarded up in the fall or the winter. It's largely boarded up in part of the summer. Tiffany had to close their store um, uh, and a, a number of others closed their store. So they, there'll be a great retail rationalization in the next few years, to your point, but there'll be a real retail renaissance starting in 2020. And the really well-capitalized, capable retailers are win, particularly the ones with great merchant leaders. So who's that? Who's it going to be? Who are the winners? Uh, we, we, see, we see the winners across sector, uh, uh, multi, multi-tier, uh, it'll be Kroger, uh, Off Price, uh, Dollar Dollar General, TJ TJX, TJX uh, Ross stores, yeah, Burlington. If you, if, if you look at to your point, Pam, the best leader in retail or retail is uh, Ben Camerata, the seminal genius founder of TJX with Carol Meyerowitz and er- Ernie Herman. Uh, their margins are twice as uh, big as Amazon. Their inventory turns are six times. The rest of the department stores are turning inventory 2.3 to 2.7 times. It's cash flow. The department stores are paying, uh, many of them are paying their vendors late. So the vendors uh, need cash uh, to uh, give to Lee and Fong in their factories. There's less credit available. Yeah, right. exactly. Well, right? Bert, so then how about on the flip side? I mean, you said that there could be, was it correct, a record number of bankruptcies in retail? Yes. In the upcoming years? So which companies do you expect to go bankrupt? Uh, it's, uh, you never you never want to say it's it's all the way over, uh, but it looks like... How about the, vulnerable? You could just say, which highly, ones are vulnerable? Highly vulnerable to the curtain coming down, so we're in the Dumont stage for Lisa. Uh, Dumont stage is everybody from uh, J, uh, J. Crew uh, to Sears Holding, uh, Bontons uh, traded, traded way down. Uh, uh, Neiman Marcus, Bergdorf's creditworthy now, uh, but but see issues uh, for them going forward. And then, um, yeah, even, even uh, undercapitalized on the, on the low end, uh, Fred, Fred's uh, seems, seems to be struggling uh, quite a bit. And, and then um, uh, chain drug discount, uh, Shopco, wherever you see private equity getting greedy and upstreaming money to themselves uh, and big fees, and, and that's, that's my professional view of, of Bill Ackman uh, in retail. I won't comment on what he's done more <laughs> recently at Valiant. Uh, but but uh, when you have a great turnaround leader like um, our mutual friend, uh, Frank Blake at Home Depot, 
Bob Nardelli half killed the company. The three, uh, three founders, uh, Marcus right. Blank, uh, et cetera, brought Blake in and uh, uh, complete 500% upside. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group on all things retail. This is Bloomberg. Einstein's Greatest Mistake, The Life of a Flawed Genius. It was published in September, and the author of the book, David Bodanis, joins us now from London. David, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, sir. Now, uh, your previous books have included uh, such uh, titles as E equals MC squared. You've also written about computer-generated fascism. What inspired you to write this latest book, Einstein's Greatest Mistake? I thought, you know, if you write a book called Einstein is Smarter Than Us and We're a Bunch of Dumb Schmucks, nobody's interested in that. But if you have a book that's like, oh, poor Einstein, he had something wrong, that there was a psychological aspect of him that we could understand, then everybody's interested, including this author. I loved I, uh, um, turning him into a human being and really seeing not just his great strength, which were magnificent, but also what happened when he stumbled. How did he get stuck and what lessons does it give us? So what, what was his biggest mistake? His biggest mistake, it was a psychological mistake. It was a psychological mistake. He, he believed that the universe was like a beautiful, clear book, that everything was crisp and clear, that there was an order. It wasn't like a random magazine with a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, and then he had had so much reason for believing this. It made all sorts of sense about outer space. It led to notions of the expanding universe, just terrific insights that later, when people started studying things on the micro-small micro level in, in quantum mechanics, would seem to suggest that the universe isn't orderly, that it isn't super clear and crisp when you analyze. He just couldn't accept it. You know, he, he had this comment, God does not play dice. Uh, was he a religious person? Um, if you if you make a sort of oh, uh, just I could just say about that comment. So yeah, so Einstein said God does not play dice with the universe. Everything's orderly and clear. There's a pattern set up in advance. And his good friend Nels Bohr used to say, Einstein, stop telling God what to do. <laughs> like how do you know? It's great, isn't it? Um, so for religion, if uh, Einstein he wasn't an atheist. He thought atheism was was very unscientific. It, um, you know, like you're presuming to know too much. On the other hand, he wasn't a believer in traditional, like the details of revealed religion. So he would think that Moses was very wise, but he didn't think that Moses got the uh, commandments from God on Mount Sinai. But there's a big space in between. And uh, uh, Einstein loved the uh, 17th century Dutch Jewish philosopher Spinoza. He thought Spinoza wrote about this, these waiting patterns in the universe, not presuming to say where they came from, but just thinking, how magnificent is it that there's, instead of chaos and disorder around us, there's this harmony, there's these patterns. Where do they come from? Maybe, maybe really thoughtful human beings can just discern that pattern, take away the veil between us and deepest reality, and see what's there. And Einstein really wanted to do that. Can you uh, maybe draw uh, some connection to the way people look at the markets and, and, and money? Because you talk about patterns and being able to understand the patterns and the, uh, and the moves. Is there a, can you define the difference between a psychological mistake and a technical mistake that might be applied uh, to looking at the world of business and finance? Sure, uh, very much. The reason Einstein got stuck in his uh, psychological mistake was because his particular approach had been really successful before. And if something's worked really well, if your company's done well, you tend to think it's because of my approach, my approach to the markets, my insight. 
Well, it might actually just be chance, right? I mean, that's why tracker funds on, on a simple level have done so well. So very often people get not just so much a rut of failure, but a rut of success. You're doing something well, and it's really hard to, uh, to change it because it's been very successful. The other thing that uh, comes from Einstein, which might apply to the markets, is he developed his own tools, which is a great thing to do. For him, it was certain tools in mathematics. Within the markets, it might be, I don't know, certain quantitative people one brings in or certain analytic approaches. And you become really proud of your tools. You get good at using your tools. And you find it hard to imagine what it would be like using very, very different tools. And then, of course, behind it all is maybe what was your, your first question. If you believe, like Spinoza and Einstein, there's deep patterns waiting in the universe, you're not going to give up till you find them. And some people, you know, it always comes up. Somebody has this guaranteed way to understand what appears to be turbulence in the market actually follows such and such deep patterns. And we're very often disappointed. Those, those insights tend not to hold for more than, than temporary uh, intervals. But yet that belief is there. And that belief, well, you can lose a lot of money on that belief. Well, you know, uh, one sort of uh, cliche about Einstein is that he took a long time to read and didn't do so well in school. And, um, and so what can we learn from where he was a genius? And is that true? Oh, it turns out that the story that Einstein was a bad student, I managed to trace it back to Rocky One, written by Sylvester Stallone. And although Mr. Stallone had magnificent biceps and uh, um, uh, other muscles, uh, he's not noted as an Einstein scholar. And it turns out Einstein was, was, actually, Einstein was a perfectly good student. Um, he was a, a good B-plus or A-minus student. He went to the uh, Polytechnic in Zurich. He did fail to get in on his first try, but he was only 16. He hadn't even finished high school. And his scores in math and physics were strong, but his, uh, his Latin and uh, some of his French let him down. And he did quite well after a year of remedial high school. So he was a strong student. But what's nice is that he wasn't a perfect student. He wasn't like, ooh, an A-plus student from Harvard or Columbia who's always had things easy. Einstein got used to looking at things with a bit of a struggle. So he was, I don't want to call him a total outsider. He was a moderate outsider. And there's great advantages to being a moderate outsider. You know what's going on. Yeah. But you're kind of willing you're kind of willing to take a fresh perspective. David Bodanis, author of Einstein's Greatest Mistake, joining us from London. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>